Welcome to CPO Open Mic, the podcast series that brings you experts in procurement. Beeline CPO Mike Schiappa sits down with leaders all over the industry to chat about their areas of expertise, passions, and a lot more. Tune in to every episode each month by following Mike on LinkedIn. Hello, everyone. Mike Schiappa here, Chief Procurement Officer at Beeline, and welcome back to the podcast series CPO Open Mic. On today's episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Chris Dwyer, Senior Vice President of Research at Arden Partners and the Managing Director of the Future of Work Exchange. For the past 15 years, Chris has been the industry's leading contingent workforce management analyst and an early future of work evangelist. His research focuses on the application of innovative workforce and technology strategies that help businesses around the world optimize how work is done. And Chris is the author of hundreds of research studies and briefs related to contingent workforce management, talent acquisition, human resources, supply management, and the underlying technologies that enterprises can utilize to improve how talent is engaged and managed. Chris is also the architect behind the new Future of a Work Exchange site, which has quickly become a destination for human resource, talent acquisition, procurement, and other key business executives as they seek the best strategies, solutions, and innovative tools for managing the arena of work and talent. And he too also has a podcast as well. So Chris, welcome to my podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be on the other side for once. I love it. <laughs> I, know. I was on one on the other side uh, a few weeks ago and it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. But, yeah. So anyway, happy spring, fellow Massachusetts friend. Yeah, we're finally getting some decent weather. We're out of the, out of the winter, the, the dog days of winter, which mm -hmm. is nice. So I wanted, I wanted to go back a few years. I think you always said 15 years in the industry. I, I'm curious, like, how did you get into this industry? How did it all start for you? Well, first, Mike, you're making me feel old. Yeah. It's so I, it's funny people when they hear I've been in the industry for so long, they automatically think, oh, wait, Chris may be in his fifties. And I actually turned 40 this year. So I got a very early start to my career. And like a lot of things that really happened by accident. So I spent time, I was a journalism major in college at Suffolk University. I spent about a year and a half in that world. And realizing making seven, $7.50 an hour for working 80 hours a week wasn't for me. And pretty soon I found myself again, that's just weird how things work out. I was in procurement and accounts payable at Blue Cross and Blue Shield right down the street from Fenway and Fenway Park, for those of you that, that, that don't know the Boston area. And I worked there for a bit and I think it was nice just having, being able to get out of work at five o'clock rather than working until midnight, four nights a week. And what ended up happening was I ended up getting connected to this company called the Aberdeen Group. And I was doing a little bit of like freelance accounting and invoice processing work. I was assisting the, uh, the brand new CFO at the time with his sort of, of the research companies, invoicing processes, accounts payable processes, procurement, and all of that, and uh, including accounts receivable as well. Aberdeen at the time, this is early 2006, they were a formidable competitor of Gartner and Forrester and IDC at the time and had a really big name in the industry. And I happened to bump into the CEO like during a lunch break and, and he had this way of talking to people and he said, son, what's your story? And uh, like, like, like in a movie, right? And I said, oh, well, I'm, you know, journalism background writing. And he's like, well, you know, we publish research. And I said, yeah, I do, but I don't really know a lot about it. And 
I think it was about two weeks later, I, I went through their job fair and found myself a junior analyst in, in the procurement group of all groups. And at that time, the contingent workforce, um, Mike, you can probably remember back to your career at that point as well. The contingent workforce was just another indirect complex spend category. And there, it was strategic for some organizations, but for most it was just this big bucket of spend. And I remember writing my first research study the the summer of 2006 and love at first sight. I loved, <laughs> loved the topic. <laughs> and I think being exposed to both the solution providers, so the VMSs, the MSPs at that time, and also the practitioners as well, talking to HR executives, talking to CPOs, Mike, like yourself, and mm -hmm. uh, getting to know just the story behind the space. From there, it's just, it's like, all right, it's been history. And I spent uh, seven wonderful years at Aberdeen and came over to Ardent in 2013 to, to essentially just kickstart its coverage of the contingent workforce. And like you said in my bio, early on, I, I really caught on to this idea of the future of work movement. And you know, I'm not saying I was the first to use the phrase, but definitely one of the early, the early evangelists of, of the future of work movement way back when. And you know, here we are today where we look at the contingent workforce as a multifaceted, greater piece of what we call the extended workforce. And the extended workforce itself is part of this future of work. I call it a movement, but you can call it any, anything you really want. And here we are. So yeah. Uh, that's a quite a ride, but no, I, I feel old now, Mike. Thanks. No, if you feel old, I'm a couple of years, well, about four years older than you. So you're a young man, my friend. Thank you, brother. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, it's funny. That's really cool how you got into it. And I think 15 years in this space and just seeing the ups and downs and the, the ebbs and flows must be really interesting. But what do you, I guess the last 15 years, what do you find, what do you like most about it? Is it how it does change so much, the innovation, or what do you like most about it? Maybe wearing sweatpants to work every day? Is that <laughs> the, the, right, the right answer? <laughs> no, again, another early adopter of the working from home thing, right? Doing that for, for 12 yeah. or 13 years. Oh, no, seriously, uh, I think that, and, and again, and, it's, and I always say there's no offense meant to any other industry out there. I've got very close friends that are at sales at some of the big ERP companies. My brother-in-law is at Infor. He's doing CPQ sales and very complex software that's, wow, like it blows your mind. And again, no offense to all of those. I just find that this industry is just, it's very rare that you can be part of something for such a long period of time and see it evolve so much. There's not a lot that's happening in other spaces that it's two or three year shifts, right? Like we feel or at least I feel like we're going through transformation every day. And I remember just a couple of years into my career, a great recession happens, right? And you have so many organizations calling me, you have directors of talent acquisition, again, CPOs, CHROs, and saying, all of a sudden we've doubled our contingent headcount in the past two weeks. And now we need more strategic guidance. We need to know how to effectively manage what has become a critical piece of talent in an organization, right? It wasn't just someone sitting in for a receptionist that's on leave or sitting in for a data entry clerk for two weeks if you know he or she's taking a vacation. You know, you're talking about critical, uh, heavy impact talent. And that was, you know, a first turning point. And, you know, over the years, seeing it grow so much, I think that's probably the biggest thing is that the fact that we've, we went from maybe 12 to 14% of an organization's workforce was considered contingent or non-employee. And that number, uh, as of last year was 47%. And we haven't run our new research study yet, but I'm going to bet that's gone up a couple of percentage points since, mm -hmm. since, you know, last summer. And so I think that's the most interesting thing. If I look back, it's just the fact that, you know, when you look at all the different slices of what I do and what this industry is and what we've become, it's not just looking at talent engagement or workforce management. It's looking at those aspects like remote work and hybrid work. It's looking at 
data and analytics and total talent intelligence. It's the convergence of HR and procurement together. So many exciting things happening. And yeah, again, you look at, uh, you look at fine tech, you look at crypto, you look at all of the other, you know, wonderful technology spaces and a lot of evolution, a lot of things happening there. But I think there's more of a parallel to what businesses are going through. When we talk about you know, the contingent workforce, we talk about the extended workforce, and we're talking about all of the associated pieces of the future of work puzzle. So uh, it's really that I feel like just a consistent transformation and evolution. That's the most exciting piece of it. Yeah, it, cert it certainly is transforming. There's no question about it. Getting bigger and bigger, like you've said, and I think you're pretty much projecting like 50% almost of any company's workforce can be, is going to be contingent, like within the next couple of years, maybe even less than that. Next. Yeah, maybe less than that. That's right. Yeah, which is fascinating. And I think on the enterprise side, the, the category itself, because you talked about the, the strategic nature of it or the lack of strategic nature of it years ago. And now there's just so many touch points across IT, human resources, every line of business within the organization has some sort of contingent need potentially. And uh, it's really, it's essential for business impact and execution of whatever their goals are. So I, I hear you, man. Going back to that trajectory, which has been crazy, crazy high for the last 10 years or so, let's say it's that 50% for within the next year or two. Do you think that's, do you think that's going to continue to be that aggressive, like three, four years out, or do you think it's going to slow down? What are your thoughts there? It, that's a great question for years. And I remember one of your competitors, one of the fellow industry giant included a quote from me back in 2014, I believe that said that I, I predicted by 2020, we'd be close to half and was like, oh, wow, that's how people are going to hold me to that now for the next six or seven years. We're not going to be living in a world where 70% of our workforce is considered contingent, right? I think that we, we're going to get to 50% within the next 12 to 18 months. And you may see, you're not going to see three or four percentage points growth every single year. I think that the market will settle at some point. I think businesses are, are going to realize that there's more to their workforce than you know, just this two sides, employees and non-employees. There's going to be, honestly, and I know I'm kind of all over the place here, but I do think that when you break down the near 50% of the workforce that's non-employee, you know, it's not just staffing suppliers. You're talking about workers that are coming in through a talent marketplace. They're gig workers. You're talking about consultants and, and professional services. And I think you'll see fluctuation in, in sort of the subcategories of the extended workforce, but it's not like we're going to see 10% growth year over year for the next 10 years. I do think at the end of the day, it's almost like the benefits of the extended workforce can work against itself in terms of its growth, because at the end of the day, we are talking still about shorter term engagements. We're not talking about bringing someone on for four years. No one's getting a gold watch anymore. That's something I've been talking about for a long time. You, you just don't see there's there, one of, one of my neighbors had retired, worked, um, worked for a big airline and he was there for, I don't know, I think he got hired when he was 21. He retired at 67, 68, same organization, 46, 47 years. You don't see that anymore. And I don't think you're going to see that ever again. We're going to get a point. Maybe it's it flip-flops every year. Hitting that 50% mark, that's a watershed moment for our industry. And I think from there, we'll be telling to see, okay, are, are businesses at that point where they feel comfortable, where their workforce is, are they getting enough high impact from both sides of talent? But I don't want to go on record and say, oh, we're going to be 70% contingent in five years. And I know there are people out there that, that probably would say, you know, Chris, maybe, you know, when you look at sort of the implications of 
um, a blockchain, you look at digital wallets, you look at the concept of open talent, you're going to see very progressive organizations that are in startup mode now that are part of this interesting, unique, evolving world, transformative world where they didn't have to go through that monumental change or, or shift in thinking over the past five, 10 years. Maybe those are the organizations that are 70, 75% contingent or, or extended or whatever phrase you want to use. I think yeah. that's probably the better, the better prediction. Yeah. After you're going through the answer, I'm like, that's an unfair question to ask. That's <laughs> all good. There's so many variables. You know, as I think about it, there's so many ways for that number to be impacted by the full-time hiring, the talent, the, the technology, there's just so many touch points and so many variables that, mm -hmm. yeah. that impact that and culture within organizations too. So cultures within internal organizations saying, look, you know, we want to hire more people and keep the proprietary information in house. And we yeah. want to, you know, just outsource some of the, maybe the lower level stuff or the easier type activity, et cetera. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm actually quite surprised it's around that 50%, but so we'll see. I think it, I think it'll slow up a little bit. I think the trajectory will. We'll slow down quick. Yeah. And, I, and Mike, I, I agree with you there. And I think that's, it's really tough to think, okay, my, can my workforce be less than 50% like yeah. actual employees? It's hard to think about. Look at it, look at an industry or you look at a sector like, uh, you know, oil, gas, utilities. Mm -hmm. Some of those very large multi-billion dollar organizations, you need a certain level of talent that you can't find in a staffing supplier, you're not going to find on the open market. But those were companies six, seven years ago that were at 40, 45% contingent. And you, know, you may see certain industries start to take that path, but yeah. I'm with you again. I know you have a procurement brain and I grew up in that, in that field. And there's also a part of me that wants to be very grounded about it, but the future of work side of my brain fights with that side of my brain. So yeah, <laughs> yeah <that's tough. laughs> I hear you. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into. The great resignation, like you've been writing a lot about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. The last year or year. So what's, so wh why is it still happening? Like, I, it's like the great resignations, but it's like the great realignment. People are finding yeah. like their true passions and all that kind of stuff. So what's top of mind there for you? I, Mike, I think it was you on LinkedIn. You shared a, an interesting article from the, was it from the Harvard Business Review on? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. yeah I, was, I was reading that. I, I have a, a really ridiculous analogy here. So when, when I was in high school, not to make myself feel any older, there was a heavy metal band called Coal Chamber. And they're not really big anymore, but back then they were part of that new metal movement with like Corn and Limp Bizkit. And there's a reason I'm bringing up these ridiculous band names. Um, when they released their second album, they went like totally different than their first. They introduced like 80s new wave. They were going into like electronic and part of it was gothic and part of it was like alternative rock, like a Nirvana or Foo Fighters. And I remember the lead singer answering back when MTV was showing music videos and not all the reality TV that it does now. Um, he had this wonderful analogy that just stuck with me for years. And maybe it was Kurt Loder. You remember Kurt Loder? Right. And he asked the lead singer and the primary songwriter, like, oh, what do you think people are going to think about your album when it comes out and it's so much different? And, and he said, at the end of the day, I want to put my hat in the door and I want people to always recognize that's our hat. But when you look at it through different light, maybe through the morning light, through the afternoon light, the evening light, the moonlight, you're going to take something different away and you're going to have different perspectives. And again, ridiculous band and they're not, they're really not around anymore. But I think about a lot of the business stuff in that way. Like it's all sort of eye of the beholder, right? It's all perception. It's all, if I look at the great resignation through a very pure lens of just the numbers, right? You've got 4 million people each month that are getting up and voluntarily leaving the organization. 
So when I read things like, oh, the great resignation isn't real, it's a great realignment, a great, re great reassessment, those people aren't wrong. They're just, they're looking at it in a much different way. When you have 4 million people on average since the end of October leave their jobs voluntarily, that's a great resignation. Or as I called it, I joke, the greatest resignation. That is, that's huge. But then you look at the flip side of it and you look at it and say, okay, maybe it's a great reshuffle, great realignment. Because those workers aren't just leaving and retiring. It's not like you have a 35-year-old graphic designer that says, okay, I can't work remotely. My boss is a jerk and I don't like the benefits. The culture's terrible. I'm just going to retire at 35. You're not seeing that. Obviously, those millions and millions of workers have to re-enter the market. And I think that's where the most interesting facet of all this is how are they re-entering the market? Are they becoming contingent workers? Are they opening up their own consultancies? And I have so many friends that I've from college that I'm still friends with on Facebook, that I've connected with on LinkedIn that have left their jobs over the past couple of years. And they're setting up LLCs and they're setting up their own, their own organizations. You have a lot of entrepreneurs as well. And so it's still happening because, uh, and this is the way I talked about in the future of work exchange, you have this talent revolution, right? When I look at the pandemic and I don't get too far into this because I can go off on a tangent on the human side of all of this, but think about those really scary early days, right? Okay, new virus. What happens if I catch it? What happens if my parents who are elderly catch it? There's no vaccine. There's no treatment. 100,000 people died in those first, what, three months. And I always remember the interview with Dr. Burks, who was on President Trump's task force for COVID. And, um, and I think it was maybe like late last year. And she said those first 100,000 deaths, while tragic, there's nothing that could be done. It just ripped through. Think about how scary that period of time was. And you have a lot of people that were thinking like, wow, like I'm questioning everything because I am a human at the end of the day. I am a professional and I'm also a person. And if this job, my work isn't satisfying, is it's not purposeful. It doesn't, is it, is it Marie Kondo who says the spark joy, right? The, the popular Netflix, Netflix um, special, maybe I'm wrong there with like cleaning and decluttering. If it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. Yeah. People are rethinking their jobs. Okay. If this is not a catalyst for, for joy and happiness, why am I here? And then on top of that, maybe the safety conditions aren't great. Maybe again, I've got a boss that's a jerk and they're not being flexible and I just, I'm going to move on. And so you have that talent revolution happening that is causing people to really rethink their lives. And I think that's a big part of it. Why am I here if I'm not happy? And so <laughs> the flip side of that is we have to eat. I have to feed my family. We have to make money to support ourselves. So I think it's going to be a, an interesting question over the next maybe six months or so, because you're not going to see those 4 million plus numbers for, for much longer. I think that when the numbers come out from March, and we probably expect those within the next week or two from uh, the Department of Labor, that number is lower that number is say 2 million, then I think we can start to say, okay, now we're starting to settling into uh, to a much more steady state for this great resignation. I know long-winded answer, Mike, sorry. No, I love it. I think it's great. Just pure numbers. The numbers are ridiculous. And you look at the opportunities for people, for what folks want to do. They wake up, whether they don't like their boss or whatever, there's so much opportunity for them. And I'm sure you take calls on a regular basis as I do. Hey, let me know if you hear anything or I'm looking to do this, or I'm looking to make a change. That's the thing too, about I heard a lot of people looking to make changes, whether it's going from a client side to a supplier side or vice versa, it's allowed people to think differently and act on it. Quite honestly, take action and find opportunities. Yeah. And it's, it's helped a lot of people achieve different things in their career, which is great. And 
I do agree with you though. I think I keep saying it's going to be like this for the remainder of the year it is my kind of crystal ball. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then it's got to start slowing down at some point early next year, but I still think it's going to be a very healthy market for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree. And it's interesting when I talk to, and I'd like to get your perspective too. I, I talk to other CPOs and just senior executives and leaders in procurement and, and in our industry as well. And they're starting to open their, or take down their guardrails of what they've used to look for in terms of talent and trying to fill roles, et cetera, because number one, it's hard to find the talent that's, you know, in the lane of what they were trying to find. And now they're like, well, okay, let's open it up a little bit and see if I can try and find some talent from other areas. Cause I have to number one. And number two, I want to expand the, mm -hmm. the knowledge within my organization as well. And then you have the whole flexibility piece of some companies are wanting people to come back. Some are not actually, we'll get back to that. That's another one. But just in terms of like your interactions with other, whether the CPOs or senior executive leaders, is there a different mindset in trying to attract talent and uh, execute on getting that talent? Yeah. And that's an interesting thing. You, you have to feel for the hiring managers of today. Yeah. It's got to be yeah. so tough because there are a lot of executive business leaders that just, they don't understand the labor market. They've never taken the time to, to really understand what a hiring manager does, what HR does, what talent acquisition does. It, it, and this is why I talk so much about, you know, you hear so much about the candidate experience, customer experience. Yeah. I've been trying to Again, not sing a song for my brothers and sisters that are hiring managers. The hiring manager experience is a big piece of this. And so I think there, there needs to be a way for businesses to prioritize both the candidate experience and the hiring manager experience, because th this is what is going to help them find the talent that they need. It's not just about, okay, we've got 12 prerequisites or filling a, a digital engineer role, whatever, or an implementation specialist. I'm trying to think of like those roles that are super, super complex and intricate that you need a specific level of talent. It's, you can't just throw a job listing out there or just pop open a requisition and expect, okay, people are just going to flock to this. Um, it, it's going to be very tough for, for businesses. I think, again, like you said, it's, we're going to see this for another three, four months. So the conversations that I have with those business leaders that are trying to do something about this is trying to figure out not just alternative ways of finding talent, but looking at things like, okay, how am I giving my hiring manager the right tools to find people? Are we looking at different things? Are we not just looking at the hard skills? Are we looking at soft skills as well? I think the Again, we can talk, you know, for hours about emotional intelligence and problem solving and critical thinking and all that. But is there a way for us to 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 figure out a, a better way of of finding the talent that we need? Can we utilize tools and technology to 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 pinpoint the talent we need? And I think this is a, a good entry way to talk about things like direct sourcing, right? It, it's funny. Um, old friend uh, Jeff Nugent, my my best Canadian friend, he po uh, posted something on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. It was a video of him talking about direct sourcing, I think in 2014, 2015. And I think it shocked a lot of people because, oh, was direct sourcing around back then? It was. Direct sourcing has been around for decades. It's just that now it's taken on a new meaning because it's got more technology behind it. There's more rigor. There's more strategy, more strategic thinking behind it. And so I think it's not just the, okay, let's just rethink our hiring processes. It's what tools, technologies, and and strategies and approaches can we use to, to maybe build the talent community, to look through the weeds and look through the forest and try to figure out, okay, 
I need to get people into my organization somehow. If I can just look at building a talent community or a talent cloud or a talent pool, could that be a good first step? Can I do a much better job of being more flexible in my job postings, putting things in like, okay, this is a hybrid role or it's fully remote and all of that. And there's different ways, I think, for businesses to cut through all the disruption and all the difficulties that they're having now. And it's still, at the end of the day, still a tough labor market. And so there's no silver bullet. There's no perfect answer or perfect solution. But I think if businesses start to adopt some of these newer ways of thinking, they're going to have some level of success. They're not going to cure all their hiring problems. Literally walk into any restaurant, walk into any retail space, talk to your friends who work in office buildings and different organizations. They're, everyone's having a staff shortage, right? I always joke that there's a Wendy's right down the street. And after my son gets through with soccer on, on Saturday afternoons, we'll take him to the drive-thru and the line's always long. He's oh, daddy, the line's always long here. And, and I'm sure he doesn't want to hear it. And I'm like, bud, there's just two guys in there working right now. And you can see the manager, like he's cooking and he's like filling drinks and he's taking the orders. And it's every organization is dealing with some level of that. And if businesses can figure out some alternative, innovative ways of finding talent and all of that, that's, that's going to be big. And we could, Mike, you and I could talk about direct sourcing for hours here, but I know if there's one takeaway from my long winded rambling answer, it's that maybe look into something like direct sourcing, maybe look into building your own talent community. Those are the strategies that are going to help in the short term. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's funny, you, you say it's been around for, for a long time, but yeah, it has been around for a long time. Uh -huh. Some of these folks that it's shocking to me that some of these enterprise companies don't have a direct sourcing program in place. And it's even more shocking to me when I talk to some potential clients that don't have any systems in place, don't have any MSP, don't have anything at all in place doing it with Excel spreadsheets and what that. Yeah. How does, how do these organizations put together that operating model the right way and make sure that it's agile and they can keep up with the right technology and how things shift, I think is hugely important. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when, as you were talking about that, I was thinking back to the old question of HR versus procurement. What, how, what have you been seeing as of late? Has this, has the greatest resignation or the great resignation, has it shifted that in terms of who's responsible or accountable within an organization? Is it just HR? Is it talent acquisition? Is it procurement? Are you seeing a hybrid? Are you seeing any changes there at all? It's funny, right? Because I always think that there's still this bridge, this gap between them, right? Yeah. Procurement and HR have historically sat very far away from each other. And I remember maybe it was 2016, I wrote a research study on how do you they bridge the gap between the two? And, and I haven't, I really haven't picked that report up in yeah, no, since I wrote it. Right? So six years. I picked that up the other day just to steal some of the, some of my old stuff to see if I can uh, kickstart any uh, creative juices. And I think it, it's funny. It's like a lot of those, there's the, the pros of each group, each side. That's even more important today, right? Like I always say, okay, procurement, great at supplier optimization. They're great at looking at costs and budgets. They're great at looking at the bottom line while also looking at trying to not just get talent because it's, it's procurement does a lot more than that. How do we, you know, get the rubber for our tires? How do we get you know, the metal for whatever product we're building, right? So procurement does a great job at all of that. And HR, of course, they're the, they're the people. They manage people in the right way. The great thing I think about the, the organizations that are coming together and having procurement and HR in a harmonious sort of joint program, holding hands and being, being friendly with each other is that's where we all need to be from a business perspective. I think if I wasn't where I was and I was an executive leader at, at an organization, I would say, okay, I need to build the best workplace culture. I need to figure out 
the best way of finding people that, you know, are going to align to that culture, I need to be flexible, right? HR does a wonderful job of getting to the core of why people want to be part of the organization and, and getting people to, to trust the organization and, you know, handle all of those emotional human aspects, right? I mean, it's human resources that's in their name. We're also looking at a market that is globalized. It's volatile. It's like super fast. And that's where procurement does a great job. I mean, I mean, I remember back in maybe, you know, 2009 during that great recession period where, you know, a lot of procurement executives were saving the day because they were figuring out better ways of saving money on and, and still allowing the organization to run. And so, you know, these are two very different functions that I think if they come together, they're going to find that, you know, they're very well built for the market today, right? And I think it's looking at and relying on each other's, relying on each other's strengths to find the best way. Like, okay, like when you think about talent communities, you think about talent clouds, you think about figuring out maybe new suppliers, right? You're using very similar tools. You're using similar methodologies for figuring out what else is out there. I think that HR can do a great job. And this is where you're seeing chief people officers really become a bigger piece of, of the organization. And five years ago, maybe, maybe, maybe six or 7% of organizations had a chief people officer. Today, that number is probably around 25, 30%. And that's wonderful. You know, so you have sort of all those aspects that, that are, that are culminating in this very weird world of work and talent. And I always talk about the future of work and saying, okay, you're optimizing how work is done. So if you look at it in a very very strict way and saying, okay, I need to optimize the way our business gets everything that has to get done. Then fill in the blanks, you know, where can procurement help to figure out better staffing suppliers? Where does HR figure into building that workplace culture, figuring out the best way to be attractive to talent? I think that's a big piece of it as well. You know, I, again, Mike, it's no offense to the procurement folks, because again, I told, I mean, my heart's still in procurement and I know, you know, you're a CPO. We're not always thinking with our hearts. We're all, we're thinking with, okay, I've got a job to do. I've got to drive dollars to the bottom line. And I've also got to ensure that our organization runs properly, right? I need the, the quote unquote fuel for organization. HR doesn't think like that. HR doesn't always think with dollars in mind. And each I think has its own way of, of operating. And you look at the big ticket items right today, the culture, the flexibility, the, where, where do we need help? Where are our talent skill set gaps, things like that. I mean, procurement and HR can, can be very harmonious. I think if they work together and I've been talking about this for such a long time. And when I hear the stories of, oh yeah, our extended workforce program, it's jointly run by procurement and HR. It's like, oh, I love that. I love hearing that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's great. It, it's always been, it's always been a question. And I think at the end of the day is there has to be a strong partnership regardless. Yeah. Exactly. Partnership, Mike, that's the, the greatest way of putting it. Like. We're in this together. <laughs> we were in this exactly. together. Yeah. They both have great qualities. Procurement has well, great qualities. HR has great qualities. They both have different jobs to do, but it's interesting you bring up the, the procurement side and the call. I've been trying to evangelize over the past <laughs> several years around procurement, not focusing on costs. And I think it's starting to get some legs because I think with, if you have the right people, process, technology, and you, you've optimized in such a way the costs and the savings organically are achieved. So trying to trying to evangelize around procurement being a little bit more strategic and not leading with costs. But I think speaking of, you talked about optimizing how things get done, right? I think a lot of people do that on a, on a very consistent basis. And I was listening in on your services procurement webinar a few weeks back, maybe a month or so back. And it's, it's it was a really interesting uh, webinar and I, 
I think maybe about five minutes into it, I keep thinking to myself, why are organizations not taking advantage of this? And why are they not seeking out more services procurement type of solutions within their organizations? Why is it taking so long? It's like the, the direct sourcing. Yep. It's taken forever in some areas. So I know you have a passion for, for services. I do. I do. Well, it's funny. I, th I think on that very same webinar, I mentioned the fact that maybe it was like 2010, 2011, I was giving a webinar on services procurement, a little bit of deja vu. And I had this slide that literally was like, maybe like a highway in Arizona or Texas, somewhere down the South and the tumbleweed floating by. And I said, services procurement, the next frontier, right? <laughs> it's like, here we have 12 years later, I'm still talking about it. Like it's the next frontier. The problem with professional services is that, and I say problem, professional services are awesome. There is your repeatable, your recurring services that are they're handling your janitorial, your facilities management, your accounting services. Those are awesome too, because they, they're, they're doing the work that no one in the building's doing. You bring in powerful consultancies, you bring in teams of experts, you're going to really push the needle on getting work done. And I think that the problem is with historically with services procurement and professional services and business services in general, is that there's always been this culture of the, the functional areas are responsible for, for hiring those services themselves. IT knows better than anyone else, the IT services that they need. And then they're always, and it breaks my procurement heart, like it probably breaks yours, but they're not always going to look at the lowest cost service. And the same thing too, every function with like marketing is going to use a marketing agency or marketing service for something. They're going to use some level of outside event management expertise to handle events as we start to get back to events again and live in-person conferences. Those are the types of services that I think it's like that next tier to up from hiring a freelancer or, or extended worker, right? Okay, this is just one worker. We know how much we're paying them per hour or it's an SOW. Just take that to the next level times a thousand. Like you're talking about milestones, delivery dates. You're talking about so much, so many dollars and so much pressure on a project, right? Because there's project management expertise that needs to be a part of it. And probably scaring people away by talking about this, like this but <laughs> there's... There is an element of looking at professional services a lot differently. And that's what we've been trying to get to on the future of work exchange, writing and talking about this is the idea that we always focus on the work being done and just the delivery dates and all that. Let's look at business outcomes. Let's look at, okay, what is the end goal? What do we want? And trying to figure out how do we get there? Look at the exact service that we need, the exact level of talent we need, the level of oversight that's required. And who functionally within our organization needs to manage that? Because as you, the biggest gap in services procurement today is having like that, having a project go over budget or having a delivery date being hit two weeks later than it's supposed to. And if you're talking about your, your accounting service being a couple of days late with something, okay, not a huge deal. It's a big deal, but it's not a huge deal. But if we're talking about using a consultancy and the project goes over by three weeks, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars are we talking about, even for a mid-market organization? And so there needs to be a reimagining of services procurement that I've been beating this drum for a while. <laughs> like, just <laughs> let's, let's rethink the way it is. It doesn't mean that we can't think about procurement's influence. We can't think about a cost management or a spender to management influence, but we just have to apply that, that sort of future of work type of thinking, right? Like that transformative way of like looking at this just a little bit differently and saying, okay, Instead of me looking at the 90 different components of this project, let's look at what we want to get out of it, the expertise and talent that's required, 
and let's just fill in the gaps from there. That's the best possible way of looking at it. And then again, not to toot the horn of Beeline and other platforms, but the automation just honestly is just terrible. They're, not your automation. I mean, like the level of automation adoption out there is terrible. Yeah. There are organizations out there that everything is done on spreadsheets. They don't understand. There's so many organizations out there. Like I talked to one, never, never mentioned their name in public, but 300 million in services spend every year. No MSP, no VMS. Yeah. That is a nightmare. And this is why I'll always talk about the value that VMS brings to the house and why there needs to be some level of oversight via automation and technology. And that's, it's an interesting arena for sure. And even though I keep saying it's the next frontier and I've been saying it for over a decade, I think there's so many businesses out there that are going to start to wake up and realize, oh, I didn't turn that piece of my program on. Maybe I should, right? You guys probably experience this at Beeline too, right? A lot of organizations, okay, we're just managing requisitions. We're just using analytics. Okay, turn on SAW and let's see the value that we can bring. There's a lot there, a lot to unpack. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I, I, yeah, I'll disagree with anything you said. I think the outcome-based SOWs and professional services agreements is definitely the way to go. Huge value in doing that. Being able to manage it through a system certainly is really the only scalable option. Yeah. yeah. Uh, otherwise, you run lots of risks involved and uh, lots of things can fall through the cracks. Well, Chris, that went by pretty quickly. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly we could have done this for a couple more hours, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for a great session today. It was, it was great to uh, hear your insights and uh, your opinions. And it was just a, it was a great, it was a great time. No, same here. I'm honored, Mike. I appreciate you uh, having me on. And I feel too, like we could have talked for much longer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll do it again some other time. We will. Yeah. We will. So. Thank you so much, Chris. And if you'd like to connect with Chris, you can get in touch with him via LinkedIn. Follow him on on Twitter at CJD underscore Ardent, A-R-D-E-N-T. And also email is cdwyer at ardentpartners.com. Again, thank you all for listening. Be safe out there and have a great day. You've been listening to CPO Open Mic with Beeline CPO Mike Shiata. Tune in to each episode every month by following Mike on LinkedIn.